The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. In 1966, a movie came out called The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. In that movie, there was, of course, the good guy, a guy with no name, a guy nicknamed Blondie, played by who? Clint Eastwood. And then there was a bad guy nicknamed Angel Eyes and an ugly guy named the Rat. Hollywood often oversimplifies people. The good guy is always good. The bad guy is always bad. And the ugly guy is always ugly. But we know that people are far more complicated than that. And each and every one of us, there is the good, the bad, and the ugly. There are the good things in us, those things that are admirable, qualities that are inside of us because we were made in the image of God. There are the qualities inside of us that are bad, the addictions, the perversions, the attitudes, the selfishness. And then there's the ugly, the broken situations in our life, ramifications of a fallen world. In today's passage, we are going to see an honest portrait of this man, Moses. We are going to see the good, the bad, and the ugly. If you would please turn to Exodus chapter 2. We'll be starting in verse 11. It's on page 45 in the Red Bible, page 88 in the Children's Bible. Last week, we started into this series into Exodus, which is a continuation of the book of of Genesis. And last Sunday, we were reminded that we can trust God with our entire life because God always fulfills his promises, because God always uses our suffering for good, because God always blesses those who fear him, and because God always accomplishes his salvation. We ended last week with Pharaoh's daughter naming the baby Moses. And then this week, we fast forward 35 to 40 years. And we're going to get to know this guy, Moses, a little bit better, which is important because we'll be traveling with this guy, Moses, for the next 20 chapters of Exodus. And if you continue to read on for the next four and a half books of the Bible. And as we look at this honest portrait of Moses, this autobiographical portrait of Moses, we're going to see the good, the bad, and the ugly, but also the grace of God that transcends all of them. So let's read together Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 11 through verse 22. Exodus 2, 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to, to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had 
seven daughters. And they came out and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughter, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word written through Moses for our benefit and for your glory. Lord, as we look at this portrait of Moses, the good, the bad, the ugly, pray that you would grant us through your Holy Spirit honest self-reflection to see these in our own lives. And that in it, we would turn to you as our Redeemer and our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at Moses' condition, my hope, again, is that we would look at our own condition and that we would thank God for the good he has done in our hearts, that we would repent to God for the bad things that come out of our hearts, and that we would trust God for the ugly situations we find our hearts are in in this fallen world. And so let's start with the good. Look at verse 11 with me again, if you would. It starts like this. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. One of the first good qualities that we'll see of Moses is that Moses is a lover of justice. Moses was raised in such a way that he was to look down upon the slaves, that he was to oppress the slaves, that he was even to hate the slaves. In the education of Egypt, it was said of leaders such as Moses, you call for one, a thousand answer you. You will not be like a hired ox. You are in front of others. Contrastingly, it was also said of slaves that they were, quote, the living dead. And compared them to donkeys. But by God's grace, because Moses is made in the image of God, he was a lover of justice and a defender of the oppressed. Acts chapter 7, Stephen is being stoned. And as he is being stoned, as he's on trial, he recites the history of Israel to his persecutors. And he talks about Moses to great length. And so we're going to refer to it multiple times today. But we see in Acts 7, Verse 22, Stephen says this. He says, And Moses was instructed in all wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart 
to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him. Although Moses was this man in a great position of power, although Moses could have kept out of the messy messy situation of these Hebrew slaves, Moses entered into their oppression to defend them. And this isn't an isolated incident. As we continue to read on in the passage, we see this is a heart that God has given to Moses. After defending the Hebrew slave, Moses, Moses exoduses to Midian. We actually have a little map here because if you like maps. So Moses was up in Egypt and the red line uh, represents his journey to Midian. We're not exactly sure where Midian is because Midianites were We're nomads, but this is our best guess. And so Moses travels to Midian, and after that long journey, sits down by a well. And then we read in verse 16, Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Ruel, He said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flocks. Because the father was so surprised by the daughter's early return, I think we can assume from this text that this was a common occurrence, that the daughters would go to the well. They would would start to draw water. And as they were drawing water, shepherds would come in. And the shepherds would steal their water and steal the well and make the women wait to draw water after them. Well, on this particular occasion, by the providence of God, Moses shows up. And Moses sees this injustice going on, and he doesn't sit on his hands. He doesn't mind his own business. Rather, he steps into the oppression to defend the women, to draw water for them, and to send them on their way. Moses was a lover of justice because Moses bears the image of God who loves justice. Psalm 103 tells us that the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts of the people of Israel. This story is a great reminder that inside of each and every one of us, there is a desire for justice because we are made in the image of a God who loves justice, who loves justice for the oppressed. Many times we try to overlook that desire we have for justice, but here we're reminded of that good calling from God to work for justice. Maybe it is in supporting a global mercy ministry. Maybe it is standing up for someone who's picked on in school or standing against a bully. Or maybe it is even taking water and food to those who have been marginalized by society. But we see in Moses this good quality which exists in all who are created in the image of God, which is a love of justice. We also see in Moses a love of reconciliation. Verse 13, you can look with me. It says, when Moses went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? In the book of Acts, Stephen uh, elaborates on this story. And he says this, he says, in the following day, he, Moses, appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to, what's the word? Reconcile them. Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? Exodus calls it a struggling. Acts calls it a quarreling. Either way, these men were 
fighting with one another. Probably the tension of being slaves and be pushed to the limit rose up and they were angry with one another. And again, Moses does not turn away and say they will work it out. But Moses enters into this conflict to be an agent of reconciliation. Now, what is reconciliation? I saw a definition of reconciliation this week, which I really appreciate. It says to reconcile means to bring a relationship back to a former state of harmony. To reconcile is to bring a relationship back to a former state of harmony. Again, this good attribute of Moses can be credited back to him being made in the image of God. In 2 Corinthians 5, we see Paul writes, And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Did you know that if you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you are given a ministry, that you are given a ministry of reconciliation? Now, you may wonder, how can that be? What does it look like to have a ministry of reconciliation? Well, let me share a story with you. There's a father that I know, and uh, he is older and he has grown children. And he is heartbroken because his grown children are at odds with one another. And so the way that he has tried to reconcile this, to bring harmony back into this relationship is that he has taken child number one, and as child number one comes to him and complains to him about child number two, he listens to it, he gathers it, he sympathizes with the person. But then he says, now you just need to remember, child number two has all these good qualities. So just overlook the ways that they have hurt you and just appreciate them for who God made them to be. And then same thing will happen with child number two. Child number two will come and start complaining about child number one and all the horrible things that they have done. And he will listen to them and he will sympathize with them and he will be empathetic with them. And then he'll say, I'm sorry that those things happened, but just remember the good things that God has made child number one to be. And let's appreciate them for that. This father has very good intentions. This father desires reconciliation. He desires harmony. But the reality is he isn't an agent of reconciliation. He's actually an enemy of reconciliation by the way that he's handling it. What it would look like for this father to be an agent of reconciliation in this situation is not to stick his nose into the situation, but to take his nose out of the situation. To say to child one, listen, I understand you're hurt, but there is nothing I can do for you. You need to go talk to child number two. And to say to child number two, listen, I know you're hurt, but there's nothing I can do for you. You must go and talk to child number one. The path to being a minister of reconciliation is very, very, very simple. It's simply to not recognize when somebody is coming to you, complaining about mom, complaining about dad, complaining about sister or brother, maybe complaining about community group leader or church member or pastor, whatever it might be, when they come to you, what it looks like to be a minister of reconciliation at that point is not to stick your nose into the situation, but to take your nose out of the situation and say, listen, I cannot help you. You must go to that person directly and share how they have hurt you. 
if we don't direct them back to that person that has offended them, if we just sit and listen to them and are empathetic and are passive, we are not agents of reconciliation. We are actually enemies of reconciliation. Now, there are times, of course, where people are searching for advice, where they keep names anonymous and we can give godly counsel. There are times where potentially sending them back to the person who's hurt them would put them in physical harm, which we would not want to do. But on almost every occasion, to be ministers of reconciliation, we have to simply say, listen, you need to go back to that person. Now, I need you to know this. This is not my idea. This is God's idea. And it's not only God's idea, it's God's command. In Matthew 5, verse 23, Jesus says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, i.e., if you come to worship, and there, remember that your brother had something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. That's why when we set up to take the Lord's Supper, we tell you if there's any, any unrepentant sin, if there's any unforgiveness between you and another person in the congregation, abstain from the Lord's Supper until you go and be reconciled to them. Jesus in Matthew 18 says, if, you, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Do you know what alone means? <laughs> alone means one-on-one. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take the next step. Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. In other words, provide a loving intervention. If he refuses to listen to them, take the next step, which is tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. If you've been through membership class here, you know this. If you haven't, then it might be new to you. But one of the vows that we take as members of this church is to work for the peace of the church. And so one of the questions we like to ask people as they come through membership is when somebody in the church offends you, not if, but when somebody in the church offends you, what are you called to do? And really, there's two responses. One, you could forbear it. Right? You could just forgive them, not mention it to other people, not talk about it with other folks, but just forgive them and move on because you know that maybe they had a hard day or whatever it might be. But if it's, if it's stuck in your heart, if it's keeping you awake and if it's consuming your mind, then you have to go talk to the person. Go talk to them and tell them how they've hurt you and work through reconciliation. And just as words of wisdom please don't do this over Facebook. <laughs> please don't do this over texting. Please don't do this over email or flat mediums. I know that's easier. I know it helps you organize your thoughts more. But do it face-to-face or at very least over the phone. Reconciliation is vital to the health of the people of God. And it's vital to our individual worship of God. And so we see Moses is a lover of justice. We also see Moses is a lover of reconciliation. Finally, we see the good is that Moses is a lover of Christ. That might seem odd. How can Moses, living 2,000 years before Jesus, be a lover of Christ? But indeed, he is. You know, I have heard 
stories of grandparents in retirement homes who have fought with one another over who had the cutest grandchild. I have heard of grandparents spoiling grandchildren more than they did their own children. Joseph was the grandson of Pharaoh. Joseph was probably the most pampered, one of the most pampered people in all of Egypt. Joseph would have had servants bowing down to him and serving his every whim. Moses would have had the best toys in Egypt. He would have had the best entertainment in Egypt. He would have had the most beautiful women in Egypt. For 40 years, Moses was treated like a god. Something that most of us would probably want. And yet Moses rejects all of those fleeting pleasures of sin to identify himself with the people of God. Look at verse 11 with me again. And it's so interesting to see who Moses, who wrote this story, identifies himself. Look in verse 11. He says, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, his people. He's lived in Egyptian for 35 years. But he calls those Hebrew slaves, those donkeys, his people. It goes on and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Moses, who had all the riches of Egypt, forsook forsook those sinful pleasures to identify with God's people. That's why in verse 14, we read that when Moses knew that he was found out, he was afraid and he said, surely this will be known. And then it says that Pharaoh heard of it and he sought To kill Moses. Pharaoh didn't want to kill Moses because he killed an Egyptian. Pharaoh wanted to kill Moses because Moses had identified with the Hebrew people. Because Moses was guilty of treason. Moses had become an enemy of the state because Moses had identified himself with the people of God who were in slavery. Hebrews 11 again elaborates on this. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, about 40 years old, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter with all of its rights and all of its privileges, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And then here's this amazing and mysterious statement. He considered the reproach of Christ, the suffering of Christ, suffering with Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. As prince of Egypt, Joseph stood to inherit an insane amount of treasure and pleasure. But Moses wasn't satisfied with it. He wanted a greater treasure. You know, if, if you were in Moses' spot, if, if I was in Moses' spot, and I am prince of Egypt, and I have all of these pleasures available to me, if you had all of these pleasures available to you, what would you do? Would you forsake them all to become a slave? To be identified with the people of God? I mean, I, I don't think I would. I'd I'd like to say I would, but I don't think I would. But the beautiful thing 
is that as we look at Moses's condensation, his his voluntary humiliation from prince of Egypt to a slave and outlaw and outcast, it is a beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus had all the treasure of heaven, all the praise of angels, and yet looked upon our brokenness, our slavery to sin, our destiny of destruction. And Christ, who though he was in the form of God, was God himself, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not hold on to it for dear life, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found In human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, here's the thing that amazes me. Do you know why Moses gave up the riches of Egypt? Moses gave up the riches of Egypt, the pleasures of royalty to gain eternity. But Jesus already had that. And so why did Jesus give up the pleasures of royalty? Well, Jesus did not give up the pleasures of royalty to gain eternity, but Jesus gave up the pleasures of royalty to gain you eternally. Jesus Christ gave up heaven to come to earth, to enter into our brokenness, to die on the cross for your sin and for my sin, that we might know God for all eternity and be with him and enjoy him and that he might enjoy us. And so we see even in the heart of Moses, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that is the good of Moses. He's a lover of justice, a lover of reconciliation, and a lover of Christ. All right, let's keep going forward. And I promise these next two points are not quite as long. See, that could have been a sermon itself. That's why I get in trouble. All right. The bad, verse 11. The bad. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, what do you think is going on here? Why, why did Moses, before he struck the Egyptian, Egyptian kind of look this way and that? Why, why after he killed the Egyptian did he bury him in the sand. Well, Moses had a guilty conscience. Moses knew that what he was doing was wrong. Not only was it wrong in Egyptian law, but it was wrong before a holy God. Even the Hebrews who Moses was defending understood the wrongness of Moses' actions. The next day when Moses goes to reconcile the two Hebrews, one of them responds in verse 14, not with appreciation, but with condemnation. He says, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? You know, when Moses saw that Hebrew slave being beaten, he had a righteous anger. As a matter of fact, if he saw that Hebrew slave being beaten and he was not angry, that would have been unrighteous. It was a righteous anger that he had over this Hebrew slave being beaten. But his righteous anger led him to unrighteous sin. Ephesians 4 very simply tells us, it says, be angry. I love it because it doesn't say if you're angry, 
Paul is telling the church, be angry. This is a command. Righteous anger. Be angry and do not sin. Moses was righteously angry, but Moses should not have murdered that man. I mean, as the prince of Egypt, could he have not just said, stop? Could he not just said, please go away? Could he not brought him up on trial and sentenced him to prison? He had so many options in his power and authority, and yet he abused that power. He thought himself to be God. He was judge and jury and executioner. And in his anger, he sinned by murdering the man. Moses wanted to deliver the people of Israel, which was a good thing. But Moses' fault was that Moses did not look to God's power to deliver. He looked to his own power to deliver. And this is why God sends Moses out into the wilderness to humble him, to make him dependent on God's power and not his own. If you remember when Moses comes back, Moses comes back and almost almost afraid, right? He he. he he doesn't trust in his own power and his own giftedness. And, and so he comes back humbly, depending on the power of God. And how are the people of Israel delivered? Well, by 10 plagues, right? Is that Moses's power? No, it's God's power. By splitting the Red Sea and then closing it back up. Do you think Moses did that? You see, it was God's power that was going to deliver the Israelites. But Moses was trying to do it in his own power. Now, there are many important lessons for us in this this passage. Two, I just want to focus on really quickly. First is this. In your anger, do not sin. Thinking back to our discussion about reconciliation, when we are called to go to people, we are called to go, as Jesus says, to win them, to gain them, not to injure them and wound them. We are to go, as Ephesians said, putting all bitterness and wrath and anger aside and putting on kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness as God in Christ forgave us. And so in our anger, in our righteous anger, do not sin. The second thing that we need to remember, that we need to learn, is that we are not God. Now, I know if I took a poll here and I asked you if you were God, all of us would say no. I'm not God. But there are so many times that we act on our own power and not God's power to accomplish a good purpose. You know, it's evident when we're working on our power and not God's power. Because as we see in this passage, what happens is that we try to achieve very godly goals in very ungodly ways. This is what Moses did. He lit this godly goal of delivering God's people justify his ungodly means of murder. This is a constant temptation for all of us to manipulate people, to use our our strengths in deceptive ways to get our way, to do what we want, to achieve a godly goal. You know, coming down the pipeline at Jacob's Well, this is even going to be something that we have to be very cognitive of. If you've been here before, you know that we're in the process of purchasing land. we're probably two weeks or, or less away to actually owning a piece of land, a land flowing with milk and honey, hopefully. But we are going to be owning a piece of land. And what you'll hear next week in our goals is one of our goals is to start construction on that land in 2017. That's two years from now. That's an audacious goal. And in order to do that, we need to raise money. We need to raise a lot of money. 
And so our goal is a good thing. We want to expand the kingdom of God in depth and width for God's glory and our enjoyment of him. There is nothing wrong with that. That is a very good thing. But you know what? It is so tempting to use divisive means to accomplish that goal. I know that you think this probably does not happen in the church. But it's so tempting to say, you just need to have a little bit more faith. Just give a little bit more money. Don't you believe? God will provide. Right? Kind of manipulate you. Guilt you into giving. Or or to say, you know what? The church, the sooner it goes up, the more people will hear about Jesus and be saved and know Jesus and grow in their faith, right? And and guilt you into giving. And and so this is always a temptation to, to strive for a godly goal by ungodly means. Now, most of you won't be fundraising, but what does this look like in your life? Maybe you have a godly goal of your children being obedient to the Lord and honoring and fathering your mother, their mother. But how do you achieve that goal? Is it through snapping at the children? Is it through demeaning them, harassing them? Or is it through lovingly caring for them? Maybe you want harmony in your marriage. And in order to to get that, you start playing games with the other person. To get what you want out of them. Maybe you want your company to keep their jobs. The people in your company keep your jobs. But in order to do it, you start overcharging the customer. You start cutting corners. Maybe you want to do good in school, which is a good and godly goal to have. But in order to accomplish it, you cheat. You copy homework. You take in a few answers to the test. What is so important as we are striving for godly goals is to strive for them in godly ways. If you want to achieve godly goals on God's power, you must do it God's way. So we've seen the good. Moses loves justice, loves reconciliation, loves Christ. The bad of Moses. Moses thought he was God. He was judge, jury, executioner. Looked to his own power, not God's. Pursued a righteous end of deliverance for Israel by unrighteous means. Finally, there is the ugly, and I'll try to keep this short. Verse 21. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses was a man without a people. And for us, that may not seem like a very big deal. But obviously to Moses, it was. It was such a big deal that he named his child Gershom. Poor kid. You're gonna mean, your name is going to be Gershom, which means I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. This was such a burden on Moses' heart. I mean, he had, he had been in Egypt. He was born a Hebrew. He went to defend the Hebrews. And then when he went to defend the Hebrews, the Hebrews ultimately rejected him. He was raised in Egypt, raised in Egyptian, but because he defended the Hebrews, the Egyptians rejected him. And now he's with these Midianites who are certainly not the people of God, not his people that he identifies with. And so he feels all alone, like he has nobody or nothing or no land to call his own. 
Yeah, in the midst of this pre-exodus exodus of Moses, God is doing something in him. God is creating in him a longing for a promised land, for a people of God. Do you remember back in Hebrews eleven twenty six? it said this, and it will be on the screen again. Moses considered the reproach of Christ, the pain and the suffering, greater wealth than treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. Well, what's, what's the reward? What is the reward that would have him trade all of the pleasures of Egypt to be a slave? Well, if we back up in Hebrews, we get an explanation of that. In verse 13, it says, These all died in faith, talking about Abraham and his descendants, of which Moses was one of them, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, talking about the promised land, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Sounds like Moses, doesn't it? If they had been thinking of that land for which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one, an eternal one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The land of Canaan was an earthly promised land, a land that was supposed to be wonderful and glorious. And yet it pointed to a greater promised land, the promised land of heaven, which all of the saints look forward to in faith. A promised land that would be perfect and holy and healthy and happy. A promised land where Jesus would reside. I shared this quote a couple of weeks ago, but I think it bears repeating. C.S. Lewis said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. If you are here and you are unsatisfied with how your life has turned out, it, it could be an ungodly dissatisfaction, but there's also something very godly about that. If you're unsatisfied with where life is, it means that you are meant for something more. You're meant for the God of the universe. You're meant for heaven, for all eternity. And so we see God is redeeming the ugly situation of Moses, preparing him for a promised land. Let me end with this. Last night, as I was uh, working on this sermon, a question came to my mind. Why do people like biographies, right? Like this biography of Moses. Why do people like biographies? I'm not a big reader, but I, I watched a biography of Randy Moss that was fascinating this past year, of Johnny Carson. They're on Netflix. They're really interesting. But I know a lot of people who just really enjoy biographies, whose goal is every year to read a biography. And so I asked, why do people love biographies so much? Well, Jason Leah, a columnist for the News Herald of Northern Ohio, has a thesis. He gives a couple reasons. I want to give you two of them. He says, we read biographies of people we admire, like Nelson Mandela, and people that we hate, like Hitler, because we want to know how a normal, quote, normal person became a world-changing figure. The second reason is we read biographies so we can see ourselves in someone else. We read this story so we can see how we are alike. We read biographies to find a little 
piece of ourselves. You know, as we look at this portrait of Moses, even if your name is not Moses, you can probably relate to much of it. There are good things that God has put in your heart, good desires that we can praise him for. There's also the bad sin, perversion in our heart that we can repent of and look to Christ. And there's the ugly that we can trust God with, that he is redeeming all things. You know, as we look this week at the portrait of Moses, it reminded me that last week we look at the portrait of God. And beautiful things happen when those collide. And we'll see it throughout Exodus, throughout the Bible, throughout the rest of human history. That the God of the universe collides with us. And he changes who we are. And he redeems us. And he brings us to himself. And he even changes the portrait of who we are. No longer are we seen as sinner, but we are saint. No longer are we an orphan, but we are a child. Moses' portrait was one determined by God. And so is yours. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the story of Moses. A reminder, God, that in us there is so many good things that you are doing. And yet there are so many things yet to be redeemed. And so we lean on you and trust in you to do those things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.